0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. It's a question that any executive or wannabe executive asks. What defines great leadership? Are great leaders born, or can the skills be learned? And how does strong leadership get connected to successful business outcomes? To learn more, I spoke with someone who not only spends much of his time thinking about leadership, but also writes and talks about it, and most importantly, has spent much of his life doing it. Ron Williams is the former chairman and CEO of Aetna. When he joined Aetna in 2001, its loss from continuing operations was $292 million, with earnings per share loss of 46 cents. By the time Williams left in 2011, the company's full year operating earnings were $2 billion, with operating earnings per share of $5.17. Importantly, during his tenure, Aetna was named Fortune's most admired company in the healthcare insurance and managed care category for three consecutive years. Since Aetna, Williams has continued to help drive leadership in business, including in private equity. He has served as operating advisor to Clayton Dublier and Rice, where he's chairman of CD&R's portfolio company, Agilon Health. His influence and experience don't end there. Williams is a director of American Express, the Boeing Company, Johnson & Johnson, Envision Healthcare, and is a member of Deutsche Bank's America's Advisory Board. He also served on President Obama's President's Management Advisory Board from 2011 to 2017, where he worked to bring the best of business practices to the management and operation of the federal government. As you can tell, Williams is motivated by leadership, why it matters, what it looks like, what it can do to improve business, and frankly, society. Ron, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate your time.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest.
0: So, speaking of interest, why are you so interested in the topics of leadership and culture? How do those get connected, and and why do they matter so much to you?
1: In my career, uh, I've had the opportunity to work in organizations that had lost their culture, lost their way, and had bad leadership. And I've seen the positive impact on the lives of the employees, on customers, on market share and on the financial results from really good leadership and leaders who understood how to develop a good culture, which I believe is a positive, high performance culture.
0: And, and how do the two connect? I mean, you've written and, and talked about values based leadership. So, you know, I, I guess how do you define leadership and then how does that connect most directly to culture? Which you know, if a leader is coming into a, a company, I would assume that a company has an existing culture, and so you know, influencing that, transforming that's got to be a a tough thing. So, um, you know, I, I know a multi-part question there, but but how, how do you really connect um, leadership to driving culture within a corporation or a company?
1: Well, I would start with the fact that one of the most important assets a corporation has are its employees or uh, or its associates the average person who works in a company isn't interested in increasing eps fifteen percent or twenty percent they show up every day they really want to do a good job but most importantly they want to be a part of something that's having a very positive impact on society in some definition of that impact and so i think one of the things that leaders learn to do good leaders is to look for that connection between the historical culture of the company, the company's strategy, and that clear and elevating mission, goal, and values which leads to a culture that is customer-focused but one that is all about accomplishing that clear and elevating goal. I think as a leader, one of the things I talk about is that leaders first have to learn to lead themselves, Then they learn to lead divisions or parts of an organization. And then finally, when they become CEOs and really good CEOs, they understand how you lead enterprises and organizations. And so that's kind of the progression of leadership and the connection back to the employee, which ultimately shows up in profitability and market share.
0: Now you work a lot with young leaders as well. And, you know, any of us who, you know, uh, open up a newspaper any day, see the next, uh, 24 year old or 30 year old, or, you know, the, you know, young leaders. And I don't know if you work with leaders that young, um, you know, with big companies and, and the, the process you just described, um, sounds, uh, you know, very thoughtful, very methodical. Um, you, you, you learn it over time and, you know, that, that, makes sense. We all kind of get better at things as we do them them over time. H- how do you talk with young leaders, and what do you see out there in terms of uh, young leadership, you, you know, particularly in contrast to the process that you just described?
1: Well, I think one of the things that I try to do with young leaders is to understand wh- where they are, and I actually have done a lot of work with young leaders, and I actually did a very uh, interesting survey of millennial leaders in uh, 12 Fortune 100 companies, where we surveyed the CEOs and then surveyed the millennial leaders and also surveyed the non-millennial leaders to try to understand the differences in perspectives. But I think when it comes to working with young leaders, one of the first things you try to get them to understand is that building a great product, building a great innovation is one thing. Building a great enterprise is something else. And the two require different skills and competencies and just as they learned to innovate, to develop new apps, new software, new solutions, they have to view the development of their leadership skills in the same context as a a journey that they really need to focus on.
0: How hard is it? How hard is it to learn and uh, to uh, master may be the wrong word but to, to get really really good at?
1: Well. I would say that a lot of it has to do do with being a a student of it, and if some people believe leaders are born, and certainly some people do have charisma uh, almost as an innate personality trait is my opinion, but I think people can learn to be a good leader uh, by understanding how you connect with people, because ultimately a good leader is someone that the followers believe is a good leader. It's not someone who anoints themselves a good leader. So I think there's this connection and a focus that the leader has to go through to really become a good leader.
0: And talk to me a little bit more about the employees and and bringing employees along um, the the path, if you're the leader, you know, getting, you know, I guess, finding ways to encourage folks to follow. Um, you know, how how hard is that? We you know, we all see those, uh, you know, the posters on the boards next to the elevators with the five point plans. And and, you know, you, sometimes you see stuff as as simplistic as that, um, but getting employees to really follow um, and and get inspired and buy into a culture and and you know follow that vision, um, it's got to go beyond that. So, t- t- tell me what what have you learned about uh, you know really engaging employees? Maybe it goes back to the listening that you were just talking about.
1: Well, I think it really does. That the, the culture of the company, every company I've been involved with who had lost their way, had at its root and foundation really good principles that were brought forward into the new culture they simply cease to pay attention to them and cease to connect to them one of the things that's important is really to listen to the employees on a regular routine basis for example something as simple as the CEO having lunch with fifteen or twenty random employees once a month over a period of three or four years you can talk to a lot of people and always had a great question that i asked them which if you were king or queen for the day what is the? What are the two things that we should do that would make this a better place for our employees and a better place for our customers? And when you go through that kind of, of, of process, you get really good input, and that helps you articulate the vision, the values, the culture in a way that resonates. One of the questions I often get is, how do you know what the culture of the company is? Because you see the banners, you see the the uh, posters etc. And the way I describe it is that if you're a new employee and you go to orientation and we tell you all about our mission, our vision, our values, our culture, and then we introduce you to your peer buddy who's going to take you to lunch, you go to lunch, you sit down at the table, you, you look around a little bit, and you lean over and you say, now how does it really work around here? What that person says is the culture of the company. And the CEO's job is to try to get alignment between what people believe the culture is and what the CEO believes the culture is.
0: How aligned were those two when you took over as CEO of Aetna?
1: Well, I think uh, when I took over as CEO, we had made an enormous amount of progress. I was president there for five years before I became CEO and worked hand-in-hand with Jack Rowe, who was a prior CEO, who really understood the power of culture. And so the really heavy lifting part during the turnaround was when I was president, and one of the things we implemented was a, a annual employee survey. It had 85 questions on it, and it was an anonymous survey. We did it every year, and when we started out, we would ask people about their pride in the company. Forty-four percent of people had, a prop, had pride in the company. We asked them whether their supervisor behaved consistent with the values of the company. A very low percentage said they did. By the time we got to the end, we had eighty four percent of the people saying they had enormous pride in the company. We had about eighty six percent that said, "In my unit, my supervisor behaves consistent." And we had the balance say, "Well, sometimes, but maybe somewhere, but not here." And so it's that kind of measurement feedback, and then what we what I would do, is I would take the results of that survey, share it with the employees, and then actually focus the organization in the annual planning process with all the financial metrics or key performance indicators. One of the key sets of initiatives we had to have were address the issues our employees raised that were important issues to them in our planning process.
0: Can you really tie that to uh, financial measurements and 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 kPIs? Tell me about some of the kPI's key performance indicators um, that you would maybe connect to uh, voice of the employee surveys and uh, um, and that sort of thing, including uh, financial
1: Well, I would start with um, when you measure customer satisfaction and you measure whether your customers are rating you high on the level of service they are receiving from the employees, it is a really good indicator.
0: Things like net promoter scores, is that what you're talking about?
1: Net promoter scores, um, problem resolution on first call, yep. a degree to which uh, ID cards go out on time and are error-free. Uh, one of the big issues was, was first call problem resolution. Uh, people understand things don't work, but when they call, they want the problem fixed. They don't want to have to have to call again. Um, The other thing we found was market share and acceptance uh, among our target customers. Um, We actually reorganized the company based on employee input and customer input to improve the level of service we were giving to our customers. So uh, the financial results are clearly important. When I joined the company the first year, uh, we lost $365 million at operating income. When I left, we made $2 billion. And that is an enormous transition, and it had to do with changing the culture of the company and focusing the company on our customers at the center of what we did. And we define customer not simply as the person who writes a check, but as people we owe a customer-like obligation to. It might be, if you're in the proposal generation department, it might be the sales account executive who brings in the request for the proposal—that's your customer. And so, redefining the customer really in a much more general sense was also extremely important.
0: Now, you said you've seen uh, bad leadership as well, or or challenging or problematic leadership. Um, what what does that look like? And you know, feel feel free to name names. But on the chance that you <laughs> you don't want to, um, you just get, you describe it kind of as as uh, closely as you can, please.
1: Well, I would say it starts with the culture in which people are uh, afraid to speak up and afraid to identify problems. And it's a culture where the leaders behave badly, and by behaving badly they give the organization permission to behave even worse. And so it's shouting, it's hollering, it's hit your numbers, or else I'm going to get somebody in here who will, as opposed to saying, we didn't hit our numbers, That is a fundamental failure. It's not acceptable. What is it we should have done differently in order to make certain we were making uh, the goals that we set out to make and having a thoughtful conversation about that, which really identifies those barriers and lets you progressively remove them? Uh, I think it's a culture where people don't speak the truth. They're afraid to speak truth to power, and it's a culture that doesn't put uh, people and customers at the center of what you do. You know, one of the examples I give is that the consideration for the person has to always exceed the consideration for the work being done. And so if you're on a crunch and you're on a critical project, you have to get that critical project completed. But you can't get it done in a way that so demoralizes people that they really don't give you their best. And I'll just give you a a brief example we're in the middle of uh, doing an acquisition. We've got to work work late. We can go from through the day and end at uh, 7 o'clock. We poll the group. The group says, look, I need to go home. I need to see my kids. I need to do this. Can we pick it up and go from 8 to 11? And so we are able to restructure the work in a way that we got everything done, but we had consideration for the people, which unlocked an enormous level of commitment.
0: Let me ask you about another challenge and and it's frankly in my view you, you tell me of course if you disagree i I think it's one of the driving challenges of our society um generally um and and that's the the inequality gap let's call it um and certainly in in corporations and, and businesses, i mean we see that we see the reports on the the gaps between uh, CEO pay and and there's you know such widespread discussion um, e- even around uh, minimum wage but but you know even going above minimum wage um, you know this this inequality gap that has uh, kind of been created in our society um, I think uh, you know really is driving a lot of uh, tension um, how do you Tie that in with leadership and 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 culture and um, did you ever have to address anything around that and and how, how do you think about that in terms of uh, making a company work
1: well i think I think what you have to do is you have to make it clear to the employees that the company will make tough decisions and 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 that there will be situations where there has to be reductions in force in a particular area but we owe those employees the ability to try to place them in the organization or to help them develop the skills and capacities to meet other roles in the organization now we're not going to turn someone who is involved in uh... uh... maintenance of the mechanical infrastructure into a chemical engineer but there are plenty of other opportunities where with retraining that person could have a very good opportunity And I think we have to have that kind of approach. I think the other thing that's fundamental is the education system, uh, that we have to make certain people are getting educated for the jobs that are emerging today and tomorrow. I think one of the um, opportunities that we have to uh, pursue is to be certain that we are giving those people the kind of educational, fundamental training that's important. Without that, it just doesn't work. I think the other thing we have to be clear about is that the employees have an obligation to develop themselves, that no one's entitled to a job or entitled to a particular opportunity, that if we want to give them those opportunities, they have to be able to get out of their comfort zone and embrace them. So I think it's a bit of a two-way street.
0: And I bet you've seen, I mean, I know, you know, I've certainly seen it. I don't think employees mind that, Conversation. I, I think it, you, again. You please tell me if I if I'm wrong, but I, I would think that um, a conversation around uh, two way streets, around shared responsibility, but then from the from the company side, from management side, meeting that obligation, actually putting the the money where the mouth is, actually doing the training, actually investing in in the you know employee growth. And I, I hear you. Uh, you know, you're not going to turn somebody. Certainly not going to turn me into a chemical engineer. I don't care how much money you throw at me. Uh, but but I yeah. I, 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 I would think that the is that what you found? I mean did employees react positively to that type of um straight conversation even if the you know even if it might have been a, a bit difficult for them to hear?
1: Yes, uh I think that's true. I think I think employees always found employees could handle uh difficult conversations uh if you talked to them in plain English and you were straight with them. They know uh, that, that, that not everything can be preserved. What they don't want is to run around euphemisms and lack of clarity.
0: Yeah, I would, uh, I would think so. Ron, you, you dedicate part of your life now to private equity. Uh, what is it about that approach to capital and business building that you find attractive?
1: I find private equity really attractive because it's an opportunity to take very good businesses or businesses that have the potential to be good or great and to help them live up to their potential. One of the things I find when I talk with my partners in private equity is collectively we spend time with businesses and executives that haven't had the privilege of all the scar tissue and mistakes that we've made over our careers. And the opportunity to bring that knowledge, expertise, and perspective to these businesses creates more jobs, creates value for our limited partners and gives them very attractive returns on their capital and so it's it's really a win-win-win all around to be able to work in private equity take good businesses and make them substantially better you enjoy it i enjoy it a lot it's wonderful i enjoy it and i have to say that uh, i could not have picked a better firm uh... the clayton Dubilier model is um, a great model because it combines the operating partner perspective with the uh, financial partner perspective, and and, and together uh, it makes for an awesome team.
0: Tell me about your background and, and how you got here. I saw that you grew up in Chicago. Um, that's my hometown as well. Tell me about your family and growing up there, and um, please tell me that you're a Cubs fan and not a White Sox fan. <laughs>
1: Well, I, I have to say I grew up a uh, White Sox fan but I did migrate to the Cubs over time. We were welcome I, to have I, you.
0: We 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 were waiting for you, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I grew up in Chicago. I went to a uh went to public school there. I uh when I graduated I went to community college uh for uh, a couple of years and then I went to Roosevelt University and uh went to night school and you know, graduated in four years from the day I graduated from high school and uh, went to work, and I had always worked uh, full-time during my, um, my college years, and went to work, ended up working in a company called Control Data, which was a terrific technology company. And then graduate school, and then entrepreneurial started companies, and then migrated into healthcare. Yeah. So I've been very fortunate and had a, a lot of opportunity and a lot of help from people.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you have, but, but it sounds like particularly, you know, if you started, uh, and I saw that you'd gone to, to Roosevelt, um, in starting in community college, I mean, you, you, uh, um, you know, you, you must have done a lot of that clearly on your own. I mean, you're certainly being gracious, and I'm sure you did get a lot of help. We all do. Um, but, but you also must have done, you know, just quite a bit of that uh, on your own. What did you, what was, I mean, you focus on leadership. I, I'm just assuming, imagining that, um, that gets born in somebody at a young age um what what was you know was that from your parents was that from school was that from a friend who who how did you kind of get inspired as you were growing up?
1: Well, you know I have to say that uh i really I've never had a good answer to that obviously, my parents were instrumental they were you know modestly educated um, and uh but uh believed in hard work and discipline. Um, A lot of teachers were instrumental, and uh, I studied psychology, which turned out to be a really excellent uh, activity. Uh, You know, I think uh, this whole question of um, uh, what really uh, contributed to me getting to where I get to, I think one of the things that made a huge difference to me was uh, as an undergraduate, I studied psychology. As a graduate student, I studied clinical psychology. And I joked that I became a capitalist the day I realized that in order to complete the last nine hours of my degree, I would have to work for free uh, for uh, a year. (laughs) And uh, I joked that uh, that ended my interest in psychology uh, and my beginning as being a capitalist. But I think part of the answer is this notion, learning to lead yourself, is really part of the fundamental building blocks of a successful career. And I think somehow or another I stumbled into the secrets related to that.
0: Yeah, know know thyself. I think I read something that you had written, that you the the first lesson of leadership is know thyself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ron, thank you. Thank you for your time and and your thoughts on leadership and, and culture. I really appreciate
1: it. Thank you.